Hello, this is Peter Joseph, and you're listening to V Radio. Hello, folks. Sorry about that late start. Um, for some reason, I just my computer decided to develop uh, technical difficulties right at the last moment, so I had to switch computers again. Um, for those of you donating, um, I'm still in the process of trying to upgrade my system so that it'll stop giving me the problems that it has, although I've never had this problem before. So, um, In addition, uh, let me activate the chat room here. I had it all ready to go on the other computer and uh, was not ready. But um, In any case, uh, welcome to V-Radio. If this is your first time listening to V-Radio, please check out my website, v-radio.org or v-radio.org. Uh, there you can find other archives of shows like this one. You can also find my must-see TV list, my list of free documentaries that you can watch on the Internet that I think are essentially must-see TV, something everybody should be watching, um, activist or not. Uh, if you like what you hear on V-Radio, you can go to the same website and click Donate and um, Contribute. This is a listener-supported effort. So, that being said, I'm going to welcome my guest to the show. Welcome. Hey, Neil. Thanks for having me. Well, um, go ahead and introduce yourself to the audience. Okay, my name is uh, Rob Nanowski. I'm a member of the Zeitgeist Movement in Michigan, and I'm a uh, student at um, a uh, local university here in Michigan and very interested in uh, a variety of topics that I've studied uh, recently that have in part been inspired by the things I've learned from the Zeitgeist films and from studying uh, Jacques Fresco and the Venus Project. <clears throat> Excellent. Well, as I told you before we came on, uh, I ask every new guest to V-Radio uh, the same question. What was the precipice for you? What was the moment in your life that made you decide to go from being just a regular guy to being an activist, someone who was, went from being part of the world to someone trying to make it better? Well, I don't think it was a particular moment. Um, really, I, I was in sales and marketing and technology for uh, uh, quite a few years, and ended up working at the place that I thought I wanted to be at with the job that I wanted, and this would make me happy. And this happiness instead caused me to gain 60 pounds, get uh, um, high blood pressure and type 2 diabetes, and uh, pretty much turned me into a physical and emotional wreck. Um, when this ended, I ended up um, doing some career counseling to try to figure out what I wanted to do, and ended up um, learning that I wanted to join academia. And after doing that, this is about a year and a half ago, um, I was in this class, and one of the students was talking to the professor, and he said, hey, have you seen a movie called Zeitgeist? And my cousin, uh, I have a cousin on the other side of the, uh, on the, other side of the country, who'd mentioned it to me before, and I watched it, and I was completely blown away and started researching um, a lot of these things, which actually made me quite paranoid for quite a while <laughs> from, <laughs> yeah. from the first movie. 
Mm-hmm. Um, it lined up with a lot of things that I'd always thought myself, so uh, it wasn't too dramatic. Um, although the the things at the third section of the movie um, with the Federal Reserve and things like that, that that's nothing I'd ever looked at before or considered, and it, I think that was the paranoia part. Um, so then after watching the Addenda movie, I realized that uh, uh, Jacques Fresco and a lot of the ideas uh, put forward in the movie were actually some of the things I researched uh, myself, um, psychology, uh, uh, cybernetic systems theory, things like that. And it just kind of propelled me, I think, in my studies. And um, I'm, I'm a cell student. Um, I, I have great mentors at the university I, I attend and appreciate uh, their, their guidance, but um, I think it's important to um, develop your own um, kind of ideas based on your own uh, research because we live in a wonderful age where <coughs> information is available to us uh, nearly instantaneously uh, through the Internet, and so learning uh, can progress uh, dramatically, um, and this is something that I don't think uh, society is prepared for, and, and I think that's part of the reason you're seeing a lot of uh, a lot of the changes in society is because of the internet. Well, I certainly agree with that. The internet, and in particular, you know, just the way that it allows us to communicate with people from all over the world, is definitely doing different things to the society at large. Um, I mean, you can see the impact on it, particularly when it comes to activism. Uh, things like the Occupy movement, for example, would have had a much harder time getting off the ground if it weren't for something like the Internet. Uh, the Egypt protests uh, pretty much can be credited to the Facebook groups in Egypt that organized all of that stuff. Uh, there's essentially, it's it's really changed everything about life, and that's actually why I'm, one of the reasons I'm making a film about what I think to be the biggest threat to the Internet, actually, is the, when people abuse it, just like anything else. Um, but that actually kind of brings me to some of the other aspects of the studies that were things I wanted to discuss with you. And that is that there are certain social nuances, little um, phenomenon uh, or even anomalies, you could say, to some degree, although it's not really anomaly, but it should be counted as one, um, about the way human beings interact. And more specifically, about the fact that we tend to fall into these kind of invisible hierarchies uh, that at least that's the nature of the way we interact right now. That there seems to be a certain amount of. It's like, actually, I was I was trying to write a blog about this earlier, and that's why I said it was good that I could get a hold of you since you had studied some more on this subject and you kind of understood where I was coming from. Uh, but that is to state that there are a lot of things that we as a species, at least currently, will do to try to essentially block out the truth of things, and it's usually according to one social set of rules or another, um, essentially being that, you know, there are people who are perceived to be higher on a social scale, and then there are people who are perceived to be lower, and then everybody vies for dominance in that scale, and kind of follows along with a, a set of unwritten rules. And when you confront these things, people tend to become uncomfortable, um, or they just throw their you know hands up in the air and just say, oh well, it's it's human nature, you know, it's just the way it is, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and when I had discussed this with you previously, you had talked about different things that you had discovered in your own studies 
that could even lead to, you know, examples of biological causes of this behavior, you know, how we allow ourselves to essentially take part of what is really a hypocritical game in the way humans interact. Do you want to go ahead and comment on that? Well, where do you start, really? Um, I guess the first thing I would say is that the things you're talking about, one of the causes, and, and things are typically multi-causal, that's one of the things that I'm finding <clears throat> is a uh, difficult proposition for some to consider is that oftentimes there are more than one cause for a certain thing. People are seemingly very interested in finding the root cause of something and not considering the multi-causal nature of of an expression that happens in in this uh, physical reality. Um, <clears throat> I would say that there are different there are a couple different ways you can look at this uh, from a sociological perspective. I would say that that's uh, explained well by what's called uh, drama, dramaturgy, which is uh, uh, it's kind of a symbolic act interactionist kind of perspective. Um, the best way I can put it is uh, there's a Shakespeare quote that says, all the world is a stage and all the men and women merely players. I'm sure you've heard it. Sure. And what that means is that it seems that our reality is based upon the interaction we have with other people, and we kind of set a play um, that we participate in. Um, <clears throat> there's an interesting psychological study that was done in the uh, early 70s by Phil Zimbardo um, at uh, Stanford, and it's called the Stanford Prison Experiment. Are you familiar with that? I've heard of it and, and read about it, yes. Okay. The Stanford Prison Experiment pretty much took uh, 12 students who were considered psychologically normal and put them into the situation of a prison, uh, six being randomly assigned uh, the prisoner uh, stereotype, six being randomly assigned the guard stereotype. And after three days, the experiment had to be stopped because the people were actually becoming uh, these stereotypes to the point where we were having mental breakdowns and abuse occurring. Um, and it just is a, is a good example of how that sociological perspective of symbolic interactionist or uh, dramaturgy um, can be validated by another science, uh, psychology. Um, and I thought that was interesting, and it's actually going to be um, a point for the presentation uh, that I'll be giving at uh, this year's uh, Z-Day in Detroit. Right. I'm looking forward to that. I'll be giving a presentation of my own, actually. So um, now, you know, the thing about the Stanford prison experiment that I've heard is that people kind of use it as a proof positive in some way that people will automatically fall into those roles um, I think and what ends up happening from that is that some people then therefore say that that in of itself is a reason for getting away from any concepts of any kind of authority figures 
the the problem is is that what I have discovered in my own studies of the situation, particularly ironically in freedom movements, is that even if you don't have official authority figures, if you don't have a strong knowledge of the strategies and tactics utilized by people in these situations, you're still going to get authority figures. They may not be labeled as such. But, you know, they may not uh, technically have any official power, but they will still take over and they will still have a huge impact on how the people within a given society behave. I mean, you see it, for example, in high school, um, you know, even earlier than that, actually, as my daughter is going to the first grade now, I'm already witnessing it firsthand in very young children. And that is that essentially, eventually, a kind of a pecking order will develop, if you allow it anyway, um, and that pecking order is enforced via just what I always refer to as the is the the pyramid scheme. Essentially, there's a few people at the top of the pecking order, and uh, there's a lot of people at the bottom of the pecking order that all think that maybe if they just kiss the right amount of butt that they'll be on the top too. And so they all kind of enforce this social order that the people who are below them, well, they get to be picked on, and the people that are above them, well, you know, they get to have their butts kissed and the idea, it ends up being, the reason I call it a pyramid scheme is it reminds me of the description of the supposed trickle-down economic theory because, yeah. you know, you're always told that, well, you know, it, maybe if you dress right, maybe if you, you know, uh, have only, you know, associate with certain people, then you too can be, you know, one of these special people. And by the time you're finished, this is the really ironic thing about it is, it's the most fascist circumstance I've ever seen. You know, people don't really tend to remember or really want to consider just how much control the in-crowd had over them when they were going to school, you know, um, even if it was just in a matter of making you uncomfortable or uh, giving you anxiety, even if you didn't want to play their game, it inevitably impacted your life. And, of course, in school it's even worse because, you know, they always give you the solution of, well, just ignore them, and then they lock you in a room with these people for, you know, hours <laughs> in a day and expect you to ignore them. Um, and it, it's really amazing to me how everything in it is all plugged in. It's, I, know, I remember actually moving from a, uh, a school in a low-income neighborhood to a school in a high-income neighborhood when my father had custody of me for a while. And when I was in the high-income neighborhood, the first questions they asked, the people that were there asked me was, what kind of music do you listen to? And at the time, I listened to Bon Jovi, and apparently that was not a good thing socially. So the girl started laughing at me when I said that and then went and shared it with everyone there. And then I got to endure being psychologically tortured by these people for my choice in music. Um, the same thing went on when it came to the choice of clothing I might get. And, of course, my father, being a cheapskate, didn't really understand the value of branding. You know, So I pretty much spent most of my time in that school under an awful lot of psychological duress. And it was ironic to me because at the other school that I had been going to, shootings were very common, violence was even common. Yet I still felt less apprehension going to school in the low-income area because for the most part, for whatever reason, at least within that society, if you weren't, you know, they, people would tend to leave you alone, at least socially. If you weren't part of their group, then they, you know, there was no uh, pressure to try to be part of their group, at least not anywhere near as much. Um, whereas, you know, in this preppy school, as somebody might call it, it was constant pressure, constant, you know, psychological battering to get you to play the game. Um, and I think that the reason that this manifests in ways that I felt the need to put a finger on is that 
even within groups of your friends, I've discovered that you'll end up in situations where there's a personality who, for whatever reason, has deemed to be high up on the social scale, who's then completely allowed to be abusive or obnoxious to anybody in the group that's perceived to be lower in the social scale, and that if you, you know, the, the reason that it becomes a problem is that the sheer illogic or irrationality of the situation is not always readily apparent. Because if someone lower on the social scale behaves like that, then they're immediately called out on it. They're immediately punished for it or pushed back into place. But the people higher up on the scale, for some reason, it's completely acceptable for them to behave that way. And that's where you run into the state that we have kind of come to a point where I've noticed that there are people you can point that out to, and they're just like, well, that's just the way it is. You know, um, <laughs> they can even you can even get them to admit that it's not right, but they still, you know, go along with it. Um, and I think that a lot of it is because they've got a lot invested in that game, you know. Or as, uh, what's his name, that uh, comedian would say, you know, shut him up. I've got a lot invested in this ride. Bill <laughs> yes, Bill Hicks. Um but the little pieces of, like, basically, it's kind of the foundation, actually, of why the idea of making fun of someone to prove your superiority to them is accepted. Even if it's not openly accepted, like, people don't readily admit to it, it's the reason you can get away with um, just attacking someone personally, even if you're completely wrong about everything else. You see it in politics all the time. You know, where one politician might have a better health care plan, but maybe he had an affair on his wife like eight years prior. And then instead of talking about his health care plan, because the other politician wants to defeat him, he starts making fun of him for his marital infidelity. Um, you know, and that really, you know, in any rational society should not work. Yet it does. Because people essentially, you know, when they see someone getting made fun of, they feel an apprehension. They feel an anxiety of, man, I don't want to be associated with that guy or I could be next. Um, even amongst your friends, I remember when I was uh, sitting at a table in sixth grade um, with my friends. There was a bully there. And at the time, I was a pacifist. And, you know, they basically just kind of sat there quietly while this person abused me and um, one of my friends, his name was Kanan. He was like, you know, man, I'm really sorry. I didn't say anything. I just didn't want him to start in on me. You know, at least he was honest about it. Most people, however, they don't really confront that. They just kind of let it happen. Um, and that all comes back to this thing that we were talking about before we got on here that Derek Jensen put in one of his lectures was that for some reason within the social scale, if it's perceived to be going up the social scale, then it's considered aberrant behavior. <coughs> If it's perceived to be going down the social scale, then it's considered acceptable. So do you have, I mean, comment obviously on everything that I've just pointed out and, you know, anything that comes to mind. Well, you've given, you've given uh, me a lot to think about there. Um, first of all, uh, something you had just mentioned is, this, is that uh, this should not occur in a rational society. And I think the obvious answer to that is we do not live in a rational society. Um, human beings uh, try to become rational. We try to, but we have a, a variety of, of things stemming from our biology and uh, the cultural milieu we're raised in, as well as uh, the psychology that uh, comes from that biology that uh, constrains all of that. Um, 
a good example is uh, modern psychology has discovered um, a variety of what we call cognitive biases. Uh, underneath what we talk about, when we talk about folkways or social norms or those unwritten rules you spoke of, those are layered on top of the cognitive biases which help to create those when mixed together with the cultural milieu. And you'll see they express, um, I use a genetics term, expression, because I, I study genetics as well. Um, and I think, it's, I think it's easier to consider things um, with that analogy. So if you think about the expression of these uh, different um, social norms and folkways, you see even cross-culturally um, from anthropology that uh, these things may express in different ways, but there are certain uh, what E.O. Wilson calls epigenetic rules uh, that they express in. And those are typically constrained by the mental processes that are going on in our brain as we're interacting with this cultural information and this this uh, society we find ourselves in. Um, those cultural, uh, I'm sorry, those cognitive biases uh, are created by our biology, it looks like. Not, not all of them, I'm sure. Uh, some, it's, it's, again, it could be multi-causality. But it would appear that the, there are at least a few, if not most, that occur cross-culturally in all humans or a large number of humans, a large percentage of humans. And that kind of leads us to think that those are biologically uh, constructed uh, evolutionarily. A, an interesting insight into what you're talking about when you're talking about dominance hierarchies and things like that is I actually uh, study uh, gorillas at uh, at uh, the local zoo here, and when you're telling me these things about your experiences uh, with high school interaction or even in political maneuverings, uh, jockeying for position and everything, I see the beginnings of those in gorilla study. Uh, their entire existence seems to be wrapped up in either eating or proving that they should be in charge even though there's nothing to be in charge of. <laughs> Did you understand? Yes, for sure. Um, so I think, I think that those cognitive biases are built evolutionarily, and they've been built for a long, long period of time because they've been adaptive. Um, there was an interesting uh, uh, video I saw not long ago. I can't place it, but it talked about... Um, Things you're talking about where people don't accept new information even though it might be correct or at least more useful because um, the information they had before, we're talking about confirmation bias, sure. uh, the information they had before uh, just seems to work better for them. Um, this is an evolved mechanism in us. It's helped us throughout evolutionary history. It's helped us in forming uh, social hierarchies and those who, I want to be careful here. 
I would say that those who have a better capability to fit in within the social dynamic tend to have tend to be selected by the society and therefore possibly evolution. Does that make sense? Um, well, I think that um, it, that depends, really. I mean, um, I've seen this, at least in my experience anyway, I've seen people who can kind of push themselves into that position, um, whether or not, you know, and that would be also the, the issue I'd say is just that in some cases the people, basically there are people who are good politicians who are terrible at anything else, you know, like as in uh, there was actually a time in one of my hobbies, I you know, I do a live action role playing hobby, and there was a guy who was extremely good at convincing people that he should be in charge. But whenever he was in charge, he was just terrible at it. He didn't have any grasp of, you know, some of the more basic tactics and things like that that we use. Um, he You're had a grasp. Reminding of, me of politicians there. Neil. Well, for sure. Um, and I think that you know, it's like you would think that if it was evolutionary, that in theory we'd be improving somehow. But the reality is, is that it's just kind of um, accelerating mediocrity. It, it prevents like really smart politicians from ever being in charge. Well, evolution isn't really about making things better. It might appear that way uh, from a top-down explanation, but evolution is merely a process of selection uh, from the most uh, adaptive or capable in the context that they're in. Um, there's an interesting uh, um, evolutionary theory uh, called Fisherian Runaway. And in Fisherian Runaway, that's an explanation for why peacocks have crazy big blue tails. Uh, it seems to make no sense if it's survival of the fittest, because that certainly is something that would make you less able to survive. You've got all this extra stuff behind you. Um, but really what's happening is that sexual selection, which is the female peacock, for some reason likes those blue tails. So she continues to mate with those with more and more elaborate big blue tails, even though it doesn't technically enhance the survivability of the individuals over time. It only allows them to mate. That selective pressure coming from sexual selection seems to be overriding what we would consider to be natural selection. And I think there's a good analogy there to the way our modern society has evolved culturally. Does that make sense? Oh, no, I, I feel that it does. I think, though, that with men, you know, meaning the human species, I've noticed that people have figured out these various cues and things like that, and they use them to their own benefit. You know, the social engineers, so to speak, you know, as we bring up in, in films like Cywar, um, you know, that people have figured out the ways to kind of manipulate these biosocial pressures to get what they want, you know, from groups of people. Um, I think that's one of the biggest reasons why I feel like we can rise above it. You know, we, could, we can come to understand its influence on us and override it. Um, I think that especially, like, you know, we had discussed, like, actually before we did the show, we had discussed, like, you know, there may be my survival instincts involved like you know you don't want to be ostracized from the group because we're a communal animal and one human by themselves in a primitive culture would probably not do very well as compared to being part of a group 
Um, Even in our modern society, it doesn't have to be a primitive culture. Sure. No, for sure. Absolutely. Um, and as a result, you, you end up in a situation where you're going to allow yourself to tolerate all kinds of irrational behavior because it's better than being alone. You know, I guess that would be the, the way to put it. We are really conditioned to do that. And I've noticed that when someone is not that conditioned to do that, or maybe they they point out the, you know, the the hypocrisy for what it is, that is a great way to get those ringmasters after you. And, <laughs> and they, they, they don't pull any punches if you're kind of exposing the pyramid scheme, if you're peeking behind the curtain at the Wizard of Oz. Um, and uh, I, I think that, I guess, like, you know, because I remember having a, like I think I told you earlier, I had a conversation with uh, Marcin Jagabowski from the Open Source Ecology, and we were discussing mm-hmm. our, our life's work, and he asked me, he's like, well, what do you think about that? Is that something that we can change? And I said, well, if it wasn't something we could change, then we wouldn't be able to perceive it. You know, in the same way that racism is something that at one time was accepted through biosocial pressures as being absolutely the way things should be, it took enlightenment and enough people pushing against it to, to get that, you know, that whole reality of things to change. Um, well, mind you, it was always reality that there's nothing, you know, there's basically no logical basis for racism. Um, it doesn't change the fact that, you know, we had managed to convince ourselves enough that it was that people were, were adhering to irrational ideas. You see the same thing with religion. You know, you get into the, we were talking actually, it's a good, kind of a good segue. We could talk about groupthink now where you end up in a room full of people and there's a power in the fact that these people all agree with something, even if it's completely illogical, um, which is essentially, you know, once somebody has figured that out, the ringleaders or the cult leaders or whatever you want to call them, the politicians, the, you know, the the various, you know, shamans or whatever you want to call them of any given group have figured that out, um, they can manipulate a group of people by their, what I guess would be their biosocial pressure, you know, warning labels or whatever to be able to change their behavior as a group because they've got them convinced that they have to do that in order to be accepted. The thing that I find that's the well, probably the craziest application of that is when you get one of these personalities that can even manage to use this system to get people to override their basic survival instincts. You know, like the cult leader that got everybody drinking the Kool-Aid, you know, he got people to kill themselves, Do you know. Things. Yeah, and it's it's amazing that essentially through utilizing biosocial pressures that are supposed to be there to keep the pack together and working together, you can actually get whole packs to exterminate themselves. Absolutely. Uh, and I'd like to turn back to something you had mentioned a minute ago and something we talked about uh, the other day, and that's that um, the understanding of something allows us to then manipulate it. Um, what's what's key here? I, I one of my favorite quotes is from Francis Bacon, and he said, uh, "Scientia potentia est" in Latin. That means uh, knowledge is power. And when it comes down to it, you and I discussed how uh, B. F. Skinner had uh, figured out using um, building upon some of the ideas of Pavlov. Uh, how conditioning works and how you can, in his mind, build a uh, utopian-type society he called uh, Walden II. And that's by altering the environmental inputs into the 
black box of human psychology. You can change the outputs. And unfortunately for us, those ideas do work to a uh, degree, and instead of being used for uh, social proactive social engineering, and in, in fact they were taken upon by business interests uh, to develop advertising, marketing, uh, things like that. And, and they work very, very well in those contexts, I think you're aware. For sure. Um, I've recommended to people they watch The Century of Self, um, which is probably the most like detailed step-by-step process um, film. He watches a BBC documentary, another Adam Curtis documentary. Most of his work is great. Um, where it kind of goes through and, you know, tells the history of how they uh, got um, Sigmund Freud's nephew, Edward Bernays, to brainwash the masses into believing that being good consumers was an extension of their freedom. Um, And in Cywar, it's kind of a truncated version of the same thing, although I think it hits all the same good stuff that is in that really long documentary series and also introduces some new information. That's Scott Noble's work, and it's also really good. Um, And I think that one of the things that Jacques Fresco talks about, for example, is the best way to protect yourself from an, from some form of fascist takeover is by essentially giving yourself the knowledge of these tactics so that you can be aware of them when somebody's trying to use them on you. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, um, a long time ago, and actually my favorite V Radio episode I've ever done, and if to those of you, I've, I've mentioned this a million times, but to those of you who have not gone back and listened to it, I strongly advise for you to go to the archives and look for the show on the subject of sheeple. Because that show, basically, we play recordings of people talking about politicians, different politicians, whether it was Sarah Palin or Barack Obama or whatever. And you really get to see this level of social engineering and how you can end up picking your leaders based on biosocial pressures. Um, rather than anything resembling logic, because you had people that were saying, well, yeah, Sarah Palin should be the next president. Well, what do you think of her foreign policy? And they have no idea what her foreign policy is. Can you think of any of her policies that you like? And they don't know. They know that she's, you know, a pretty brown haired lady who's been pushed at them, you know, by, you know, advertisers who know what they're doing and political scientists who know what they're doing to make you believe you can trust her and that she should be your leader. The same thing is basically true throughout all of politics, and in many cases, people who are casting votes, it's a popularity contest, and it doesn't have any grounds in rational thinking at all. Well, once once again, um, that word rational pops up, and you made me think of um, uh, multi-causality again. I want to return to that. Sure. Um, It makes sense to me that reality, as we interact with it, is a very complex structure. Um, And human biology and our brains have evolved uh, to capture as much of that as is necessary for um, adaptation and selection. Does that make sense? Sure. The thing is, though, our biology is constrained. Things in this world uh, are hyper-complex, and when dealing with hyper-complexity, the human brain certainly can't handle all of that information at the same time. So the human brain has developed uh, what we call uh, heuristic decision-making. Heuristic decision-making is uh, guessing based upon 
not having all of the information. And it's technically it's been evolutionarily a good thing. Um, however, when things become more complex, and, and I think our social system and our technology and the society we live in today is much more complex than it used to be, and anthropological evidence would back that up, that we're dealing with brains that evolved to handle a certain level of complexity to a, to a, to a level that was adaptive for them, and then they're presented with this hyper-complexity. And this is the reason um, it's taken us so long to figure these things out. Reality itself is has shown to be counterintuitive. A good example of that uh, would be uh, the idea that the sun does not revolve around the earth. Uh, the, the earth revolving around the sun, that means that right now we're spinning in outer space at 1,000 miles per hour while flying through outer space at 10,000 miles an hour. This doesn't seem to match up with our experience. However, it, at least scientists tell us, it's true. So as things become less and less um, capable to be figured out easily, uh, they become more complex, we in turn turn to our simplistic notions which have helped us throughout the millennia or the millions of years that we've been here and been effective, this heuristic kind of reasoning. Um, in order to make a proper decision uh, based upon all the factors of Sarah Palin and all, all that junk, um, we would need to have all the information and have all the time to compute all the different types of uh, nuances to that hyper-complex decision. And really that's why I kind of feel that Fresco hit upon something with discussing how um, opinions aren't relevant, that we need new decision-making processes that go beyond our biological constraints. Yeah, and that, that opinion point actually is, is a very misunderstood one, especially when you make it in front of freedom-minded people. And I frequently have to kind of, you know, I'm like, no, he didn't say don't think for yourself. He said right. think. Think for yourself. You know, an opinion is an absence of thinking, an absence of research, an absence of fact-gathering. You know, and there are so many things that we just have opinions on. Like all of those people in the subject of sheeple video had opinions about given um, politicians that were not in any way founded on fact at all. And as he pointed out also in the example that he always gives, which kind of comes back to the, the, the troll documentary is one of the effects I'm going to talk about is the fact that you can repeat something that's not true at all. And if you manage to repeat it to enough people, then they hear it from enough people, well, then it becomes accepted consensus. And there's actually a study that I linked recently on the Troll Documentary Facebook group about how scientists have discovered kind of an algorithm for determining how many people you need to get repeating something like that before it becomes accepted consensual reality that something is true or not. And mm -hmm. that can be extremely powerful. Like, you know, I've heard different people credited with this um, I guess it's not Adolf Hitler, but somebody made the statement of if you repeat the lie often enough, it becomes truth. Um, and the Nazi party obviously did that quite a bit. You know, they repeated Jews, evil, Jews, evil, Jews, evil, Jews, evil, Jews, evil, you know, until finally everybody was repeating it. 
You know, and that comes back to that biosocial pressure issue we were talking about is that, well, if I'm hearing it from a lot of people, I don't want to be the odd man out. So therefore, I guess I better go along with this, too. I mean, it must be true, right? I mean, you know, all these people wouldn't say it if it wasn't true. And you basically disengage your critical and analytical thinking out of fear of being the outsider. But actually, um, during the, one of my first uh, speaking engagements in Occupy Detroit, I was asked to do a, a conversation where I got to get up in front of the people to discuss the effects of money on politics. And I said, it's not enough to discuss how much money or who's giving it. You need to discuss what it is they're buying with their money. And I went to the chalkboard and I drew a picture of you know a bunch of stick figures and there was four stick figures standing together close by and there was one stick figure who was off by himself and i said so what do you think about this stick figure off by himself you know what kind of images does it conjure and i kind of did a, a question thing like we were in a classroom and he's like well you know he looks kind of lonely and i'm like yeah well you know you don't like being lonely do you and he's like well no of course not and you know, I said, well, what else can we talk about, you know, this guy? And then one of them says, well, he's like an outsider. Maybe he's, you know, he's outside the group because, you know, they don't like him. And I'm like, oh, you see, that that's very important. You know, people don't want to be like that. Now, when you see somebody who's like this, you know, obviously we're in an Occupy movement, so people are more enlightened. But let's think back to, you know, when you were in school, you know, if you saw that kid sitting off by himself in the lunchroom, you, you may not want to go sit with him because of, what all these other people, as I'm pointing with the chalk, you know, to the four people standing together might might do to you or think to you or, you know, maybe you might end up having to be one of those people off by themselves. And everybody understood that. Um, and obviously I couldn't play the video, but um, when I worked for Senator Mike Gravel um, in his campaign for president, at one point during one of the debates, they stuck everybody together and then they put a coffee table in between the chairs and they stuck Gravel off by himself which sent a powerful um, effect, essentially, on the audience of, well, yeah, he's just that weird guy over there by himself. He's the, you know, he's got the fringe beliefs. I mean, it, it had this immediate psychological effect. You look at the stage, and he's obviously set aside as the outsider. Um, and there are all kinds of things like this. And, it, you know, this is another reason why I look at it, and I, when people just throw their hands up and say, well, that's just human nature – I'm like, no, it's not. These are conscious decisions that are being made by people who understand sociology, who understand groupthink, who understand all of these concepts, and they're using them against people. And the uneducated don't pick up on it right away. Those well, who are, however, do. Go ahead. Well, that's that's a perfect example of changing the environment to change the behavior. Um and a lot of the things you were just speaking about are directly related to, again, these cognitive biases we have, these self-reinforcement bias, um, the, the bias. Particularly important is the bias to uh, put a lot of value in people who think like you or look like you. Um, and this isn't just uh, a cognitive thing. This is something, again, that's been built evolutionarily. So it's these are powerful forces at, that are within each of us that then can be exploited by those with the knowledge to exploit them, um, and that that raises again my my hackles and makes me paranoid like I used to be, but I do think that there are an awful lot of people even in positions of, of power that that want to change things for the better, and they want 
people to live better lives. Um, of course, that idea of a better life is constrained by their own culture, but at the same time, they want to do well, but as Fresco points out, they don't have the technical understanding how to, and at the same time, they feel they have to, and maybe they do have to, uh, operate within the existing structure of society. Um, the idea that um, the out-group uh, is always hated by the in-group um, certainly isn't always true, but anthropologically, we do see that uh, groups that are unfamiliar to one another, perhaps speak another language, that's you know, what we call a barbarian or something, um, are often uh, viewed with distrust right away um, because of, again, those evolved uh, mechanisms we have. And they're, they're, why I brought up that people, I think, uh, there's a genuine uh, desire amongst uh, most people outside of the sociopathic uh, that want to make a better world and make things better for people um, if you look at, uh, you brought up Freud earlier, uh, the entirety of, uh, not the entirety, but uh, a lot of psychology has been built around trying to help people deal with uh, society or their own problems. Um, and there's a, a certainly a lot of um, literature to support um, how we can somehow overcome these cognitive biases, these inbuilt uh, quote-unquote rules. Um, something that I've been looking at recently, uh, maybe your, your listeners might be interested in here, here is uh, something called cognitive bias modification. Um, it actually uses computer programs um, to, it was actually originally developed for people with post-traumatic stress or attention deficit disorder, which again, those things are again, built from our biological cognitive biases to somehow find a way to um, override those and teach us how to deal with those. Um, and I think that's uh, some powerful technology that once it gets developed into the hands of the masses can help us see through some of these, uh, some of these folkways, see through some of these norms. But again, I think we also need to have an understanding not just of what's internally happening, but the external as well. We need to understand how the culture works. We need to understand that this expression of culture we call Western culture is not the only one that's in the world now or has ever existed, and certainly is not the only way to go, just something that at this point in time seems to be adaptive for this context. Does that make sense? For sure, um, and I think that it's important that we, as a human species, try to ascend to a point of understanding of human interaction that we can eliminate all of this noise, because that's really what it is. It's like intellectual pollution. When somebody is introducing this kind of crap into a given conversation, it really hinders our ability to effectively communicate, because it engages the ego you know, people get really scared. They don't want to be you know, perceived to be wrong because that's something that gets you pushed down on the social scale. We're humiliated for that when we're in school. Um, it's actually kind of ironic in school is if you answer the questions wrong, then you're made fun of. And if you raise your hand and answer them right, you're made fun of. 
It just it's like you're forever in a state of being enforced mediocrity. You know the philosophical idea coming from Greece of know thyself, that, that powerful two word statement. It it's actually misconstrued. Um it's not simply a deep uh know thyself kind of thing that you have to stew upon. It was actually at times also used as uh not not quite an insult, but maybe a suggestion to others when they start pontificating on things. You know, maybe you should think more deeply about about these things than than you you are right now. Maybe you should know yourself a bit more. Um, and I think that directly corresponds to what we're talking about here. This uh, this improvement of the information we have and our ability to handle it individually um, because I think you're dead on when you say that a lot of these things could not exist in a world where we actually have control over these cognitive biases and we have the information to override uh, not just them but uh, silly cultural expressions um, that have been built throughout time and be rational rather than just reacting all the time. I think that people need to be really on guard about how these things affect them. Um, you know, looking closely, for example, at the different elements of like bad thinking that tend to invade our minds. You know, we tend to think of things like religion in that regard, but there are a lot of other irrational beliefs that people tend to hold. And that's why I would say to people, um, to those of you who are listening, I'm giving you a homework assignment. And later on, I'm hoping to get some feedback from some of my listeners and maybe do a follow-up show where they'll come on and discuss these things in phone calls. But um, really, if you're listening to this broadcast, I want you to spend the next few days seriously contemplating on the different ways that people within your own social groups interact in the way that certain little elements of irrational thinking seem to be prevalent, even though they're obviously irrational. Um, take a moment and introspect on anything that you might be doing along that line, and obviously the people that are influencing you. Um, become very conscious of it. i got to tell you, it's a journey that really changes the way you start to look at things. And people will begin to look at you in kind of an alien fashion because of the fact that you're talking about these things that people don't really want to admit are true about themselves. They don't want to admit that they picked on the kid in high school because they were hoping it would give them social points, you know, with the people up higher. Uh, you know, they don't want to admit that they stood by and allowed their friends to be victimized because they were afraid of the social currency damage they would take if they were, you know, seen trying to stick up for that person. And then imagine how that same framework seems to repeat itself in our workplace, uh, in you know our hobbies, in any kind of social interaction that you find yourself in. Um, and there are people who know the rules to this game a little bit better than others, and they end up becoming the ones that are in charge. You even see this effect sitting at a dinner table. Eventually, some dominant personality will step forward and will take charge of things, even though he doesn't have any official authority to do it. And that's why, like, within the Occupy movement, we, we noticed a difference. For example, we were talking about this yesterday on my show with Jock and Roxanne, was that the Occupy movement uses a consensus decision-making model 
that was patterned largely after the one used by the Society of Friends, also known as the Quakers, a Christian sect of people who believe that um, any act that harms another person is actually an act that harms yourself. So they basically spend their entire life protecting everyone around them from themselves. So they hold this value structure, and so consensus decision-making works with those people very well. But when you inject, um, actually it was Danette on the um, uh, TZM, uh, like you know, basically the uh, Z radio show, pointed out, you know, when I think about the average group of Quakers and then I think about the average group of angry activists, you know, even though the activists are well-intentioned, those are definitely not people who are sharing the same kind of values as far as social interaction. Mm -hmm. And I said, yes, and I definitely saw that in the Occupy movement. There are these anomalies, these people that talk over top of one another and, you know, maybe they're a little bit more assertive. And mind you, the Occupy movement is aware of that, and they're trying to fix it. And, you know, different Occupies, you, you deal with this less than in others. Um, but that's an example of the kind of thing that, you know, essentially what I tell people is, you know, hey, you know, I understand you're an assertive personality. I understand that, you know, you're a natural leader. So now your job is going to be to facilitate that every single person here is heard because you're a leader it is now your job to be sure that every single person here, especially the ones who normally won't talk, feels comfortable enough to speak. Not just because it's the right thing to do, but because it's the most effective thing to do. If you can adequately draw from all of the mental resources of everybody within a group, then you're going to achieve great things. If you're only pulling from the resources of a few people who are the ones who are courageous enough to speak, then you're essentially allowing the group to be mediocre when it could be something great. You know, and that that points to that that points out a good uh, um, point that humans are individually uh, unique in a variety of ways, and we don't want to blot out that uniqueness. Um, we want to, in fact, enhance it and use it proactively like you were just describing with taking someone who has leadership qualities and putting them where their leadership qualities might be best used for the group um, <clears throat> rather than uh, their own, their own uh, self-interest or gain. Um, ultimately, the point is not to reduce everything or everyone to a lowest common denominator, but instead to raise us up individually the, to be the best we can be in our own special way. That is exactly right, actually. That's a very poignant point that um, within my own like social structures, like even within my hobbies, I've, I've kind of tested this thing, and it can work. If the, if the quote-unquote alpha males take their uh, power that they're given by the, the previous diseased paradigm of the way people behave and dissolve that power by empowering everyone there, that's how you achieve, you know, real greatness within your group. Um, and it, that leadership style for me has always led to success in anything that I've ever done. I know what I said leadership style um, is that essentially it becomes my responsibility to ensure that everyone else develops as leaders themselves. And then everybody's operating on the same level. You know, it's just like the chain is only as good as its weakest link. So rather than making everybody weak... Rather than, you know, spending a lot of time on beating people down to ensure, hey, man, you're talking too much. Maybe you should be encouraging that person who talks a lot to get other people to do what they're doing, to feel just as confident, to feel just as 
you know, capable of contributing. And then you'll also ensure that there's no punishment for failure ever, that there's no punishment for being misinformed, that you, you know, basically voraciously ensure that if somebody says something that's incorrect, that they don't catch any flack for it, because then those people will develop because they will feel safe to learn. They will feel safe to develop and to be better than the way they were yesterday. You know, uh, as Misashi Miyamoto said, today's goal is to defeat yesterday's understanding. Your opponent in any exchange should be ignorance or the wrong answer. It should not be the person that you're speaking to. You know, if I mean that, and that's really what you have to go into when you're having these exchanges. Is I want to improve my thinking. I want to improve my understanding, and that's not going to come if I'm arrogant enough to think that it's somehow wrong of me to concede defeat if someone else has better information than I do. That's actually a, a method to ignorance. It's a method to ensuring mediocrity in you as a person because now you're letting your ego do the thinking. And the ego is not really good at thinking. It's good at screwing everything up. Absolutely. Um, in fact, I would say the um, philosophically the uh, challenge of overcoming our cognitive biases is analogous to overcoming the ego. Um, when you were talking uh, a minute ago about um, the groupthink dynamics and how to overcome those and how to make sure those individual expressions then correspond to the group goals, I, I want to say that um, in my studies, um, we, we talked about Robert Sapolsky the other day sure. and his studies on stress and how enculturation even happens within uh, primate groups, and they follow the social system that's presented before them and, and acclimatized to it. Um, <clears throat> I thought that was some powerful research that has a lot of um, understandings for today's society. And I guess the question that I would post to everybody is, do we... Do we live in a society that raises us up individually to the best we can be, or do we, in fact, have we built and have we had built for us a society that, in fact, um, <clears throat> kind of creates a lowest common denominator society? And if you are one of those lucky few who gains the social capital and capability to better yourself, does the system then also uh, create with you, within you uh, the mechanisms and capabilities to do that in socially aberrant ways? And I think the answer to that, uh, what do you think, Neil? Well, um, I guess the crux, I mean, let, let's kind of go over that point. Um, you know, basically, you know, itemize what you just said. Re repeat what you just said. Well, do we have a social system that's conducive to each of us raising ourselves up to the highest level of capability in our own unique way that we can? Or instead, oh, I'll stop there and let you comment. Sure, sure. Okay, well, let's first of all, let's look at ego, okay? I'm actually in the process of writing a book for atheists called The Atheist Night, and it basically talks about the seven deadly sins and the seven you know, cardinal virtues. Um, and kind of reclaiming them to understand morality as logical. Well, one of the big, biggest ones that becomes a problem is uh, pride and humility. 
uh, people who are insecure will tend to tell someone who is confident that they are prideful because they want them to be insecure. They want them essentially to pretend to be less than they are so that they can feel better about themselves. Um, in fact, it's very common that people who spin the arrogant or pompous word around are usually the ones who are actually suffering from some kind of a deficiency. It's not always true, but in many cases it is. Mm -hmm. And that's why I would say that ego is the, is the opponent, but it is in both ways. If you have too much ego, then you are blinded and incapable of learning. If you have too little ego, then you have no confidence in yourself and you can't apply what you have learned. Both things, essentially, you want to achieve a balance that's based on, you know, just a rational estimation of your own abilities. Um, and, you know, for example, people who have come to know me after a while, they start to get it. But, you know, when you talk to me, I tend to be someone that people think, well, does this guy ever admit when he's wrong? And I said, um, the reason I think that you might believe that is that I rarely participate in conversations, you know, about anything that I don't know about. You know, and in fact, I tend to disqualify myself from a conversation immediately if I don't know about a given topic. I don't spend my time going, you know, shooting off at the mouth, you know, about things that I don't know anything about. I might say, well, I might know this much, but I don't really know much about this topic, you know, which is, it brings us back to what Jock said, you know, people just need to learn how to say, I don't know, you know. And, so, if, and if you're talking, you can't be listening. For sure. You know, um, and I think that in addition to that, though, is that somebody who is confident in themselves, true confidence, is understanding what your weaknesses are as well as your strengths. In fact, more to the point, it's more about what your weaknesses are because then you know what you're not any good at. And therefore, you have a strong grasp of what your actual capabilities are. And that means you're rarely in a situation where you're, where you're found wanting because you have such an honest assessment of your own abilities that you seek help when you need it. And you and you don't run into situations, you know, where you're basically where you know unprepared, you know, unable because you're you're consciously thinking at all times about what you're actually capable of. That's what somebody with true confidence has. Overconfidence is when you think you know everything, you get involved in absolutely everything, including things that are not necessarily your forte, just because you want to hear yourself talk, you know. Um, and people who are good at that level of BS, and I don't mean bad science. You know, it kind of comes back to that guy I gave you an example of. He was very good at projecting himself as being very confident and confident, um, even though he wasn't. You know, he was not confident at all, but he was very confident, at least he appeared to be. Um, now, as far as do we live in a society that encourages that, what I've seen anyway is that we tend to live in a society where people who play the social game are the only ones who are allowed to ever be credited for what they're good for. Um, people who have played the social game are the only ones that are allowed to be given any kind of benefits for their own talents. And if their talents exceed those who have played the higher, you know, higher up to the social game, then those people will be targeted for making them look bad. You know, um, there are people, for example, I'll give you an example of a military general. Um, Patton was a jerk, but he was also a brilliant strategist, and frequently. He would be sent into situations where General Montgomery was supposed to, was supposed to achieve something and failed. So they would send Patton in to save him, and then they would pull Patton out as soon as the battle was won so that Montgomery could roll in with his tanks and they could take pictures for the newspaper because they were essentially trying to social engineer the English people into having a hero. They wanted to improve the morale of England. 
Um, so there was political, you know, points behind that. And in addition to that, you know, Patton didn't kiss butt. He didn't play the social game. So they kind of wanted him put where he belonged in their in their you know view of things. You know, you're, go ahead. Uh, another good example. It, it, what you're talking about even happens within scientific communities as well. Um, the the best example I can think of is uh, uh, James Watson and Francis Crick in developing the modern model of DNA actually uh, utilized a tremendous amount of information from a, uh, um, a woman by the name of Rosalind Franklin, uh, who then did not receive the level of credit that perhaps nowadays would have been attributed to her um, <clears throat> because she wasn't part of the uh, good old boys club. Right. Absolutely. Um, same thing basically happened to William Wallace of Scotland. Uh, you know, was came from a commoner's bent, so therefore the nobles didn't like this upstart showing up and making them all look bad, even though they they should have looked bad because they were terrible. Uh, Crazy Horse and the Native American, um, you know, uh, sociology, similar background. A guy who come, you know, from came from quote unquote modest uh, background, and then kind of showed up all these other people that were supposed to be great war generals and his successes. You know, it's unfortunate that I'm using war as an example, but you see the same thing in the intellectual community. Um, it's a little easier to prove when somebody's a better intellectual than it is, say, a better athlete or, you know, um, as soon as you put, as soon as you put politics into the situation, true assessments of what somebody's quality is, is generally very hard to come by. Um, and we're kind of in a situation where, as I said, like when I did my show about homeschooling, it was one of my friends said, well, you can't homeschool your children or they won't be socially adjusted. I'm like, well, you know what? Um, I uh, don't want to be socially adjusted to what most of what I learned in school, which was that if I'm smart, then that's a reason for kids to beat me up, which seems rather counterproductive. <laughs> well, again, we're, we're all playing um, this game, this, this social game. This, we're, we're participating in this theater, to turn, to turn back to the uh, analogy of dramaturgy. Um, and those that play the game well are those who tend to be rewarded by the system itself. Um, and that's, uh, to turn again to Fresco's ideas, that's why I think the importance in um, the analysis needs to be directed at the system itself rather than the individuals uh, within the system. Because, again, as we've seen, uh, those individuals are merely just expressions of the system itself. And this has been talked about again and again, but if you're to take, you know, the 1% of society that controls things, the, the corporatocracy or whatever, and execute them all, within a day they'd be replaced by similarly minded people who fit within that framework. So the attention needs to be paid to the system and how it's constructed and how it technically works rather than the attention that seems to be paid to uh, the, the, the people, the actual actors in the play, rather than the script itself. I agree. Um, and I think it, it's about people being aware of that script and the fact that, you know, there is one essentially – you know, that some people, it's kind of like this, you know, be mindful of your mind, because if you're not, someone else will be more than happy to, to throw the switches for you, you know, um, and that's essentially what's already going on, you know, um, so basically, you know, when we look heavily at 
the, you know, the way things are developed in society, which is kind of, you know, bringing us back to the point so that we can eventually here conclude this particular issue of, or of the episode of E-Radio, um, is that, be, you know, as I said to everybody, uh, do your homework. I want you to go out into the world and observe the people around you and observe yourself. Analyze your own relationships. Think about the various people that you have allowed to influence you to behave in an irrational fashion. Um, think about the various people around you who allow other you know, mediums to essentially manipulate them and to push them into an irrational position. Um, consider heavily you know, this issue, and then hopefully by the time that I do my follow-up show, um, we can talk again about this topic and hopefully with more people involved in the conversation I want to thank you again for being on today. Um, you know, you're going to be doing a presentation at Z Day uh, here in Michigan, along with me. It's going to be at the 5900. Um, I forget the name of the street. Uh, Michigan Avenue. Yeah, 5900 Michigan Avenue. Um, in in the Occupy world, at least Occupy Detroit, we just call it 5900. <laughs> That's like right. the name of the place. Um, and we'll be doing a Z Day thing there. And um, I look forward to hearing your your presentation and. Um, I'm ho hoping that this, you know, particular event is a big success. The Occupy Detroit people have been, you know, uh, kind of a second family to me, so I look forward to being able to share this stuff with them. Well, hopefully this event can serve as a type of crucible to uh, give them um, relevant information upon what the Zeitgeist Movement proposes and some of the methods we we condone. And hopefully they'll see that, there's a lot more synergy there between the two groups than might be apparent at uh, first glance. I agree. Um, and I think that it's, when you're dealing with that group in particular, is what I give the advice I give is, you know, don't co-op them, join them, you know. <laughs> right. And we have no reason to, to try to control them. They're really good people on their own, and they're, you know, they come from a lot of different backgrounds. And I think that, if anything, the Occupy movement is kind of a, a club for people who know that the world needs to change. They may not agree on the methods to which that change could be achieved or what the final vision of what the world could look like is. But at the end of the day, you know, I feel more kinship with those people than I ever have in my life, in any social group I've ever been part of, even the ones that I don't agree with 100%. Because... We are all there because we know something is wrong. You know, it's like that, there's something happening here, <laughs> and what it is ain't exactly clear. You know, and we're trying to achieve that clarity. We're trying to, to, to get that clarity. And, you know, there's such a mellow, you know, mode of, you know, conversation. And, uh, you know, generally, at least, you know, like I said, there's still got, you know, much to learn on this, and so do the rest of us. But, you know, there's still a much better uh, medium for exchange and, you know, uh, essentially a better communication situation for ideas. You just have to remember that these people are being bombarded by so many different organizations that, you know, when you're talking to them, just talk to them. You know, don't preach at them. Don't, you know, don't pitch to them. You know, actually just have a conversation with them because they're people, you know. The, the best thing we can do, uh, I believe, in the Zeitgeist Movement is just to provide information provide our analyses and uh, let them decide and, and research it themselves and and come to their own conclusions and be okay if they're different. I agree. Thanks again for being on this episode of E-Radio. Thank you, Neil. 
And uh, to those of you who are listening, uh, thanks again for your support for V Radio. If you liked what you heard, please consider going to my website, v or v-radio.org. Um, there you can find more shows like this one, and you can consider giving a donation to the work that I put into this show. I'm probably going to be doing more traveling around to different Occupy movements. I might need to get a new camera because it seems the one I had was stolen. Um, and uh, I'm still working on trying to fix my computer. But in the meantime, a friend of mine has graciously allowed me to use his. Um, and uh, thanks again, everyone. I will let you guys know when I have more shows lined up. I'm actually trying to do them uh, just as frequently as I was doing them before now that I've gotten some of the things that were holding me back out of the way. If you have any show ideas that you'd like to suggest, please consider joining my Facebook group, which you can find in the links section on the website. It's called Fans of V Radio. Um, There's also a forum, although I haven't been checking it as much as I used to. Uh, Facebook is a good way to get a hold of me. Skype is a good way to get a hold of me. And all of that information you can find in the contact section on the website. Thanks again, everybody, for tuning in. I'll leave you with some words from Jacques Fresco and Roxanne Meadows. This is Roxanne Meadows. And this is Jacques Fresco. And you're listening to V Radio.